0: I'm here. Honestly, I'm here. I'm right here. I'm right here. I haven't gone anywhere. Well, it's not true. I am here. I am here. This is the widescreen podcast, the much-delayed widescreen podcast. I am the big bad Burgermeister. meister. Meister Meister? Meister? Anyway, I am so sorry that this podcast is so freaking late. I mean, I basically, I skipped August. July. July. It's, it's August now oh god (laughs) if this is any indication of how this podcast is going to go i am in such trouble yes i'm so sorry july was super freaking ridiculous busy and it was my own damn fault so those of you who have been here for a while know that i am what is called a creator for a video game called warframe which simply means that the developers have recognized that I am somebody who makes unique and worthwhile content related to Warframe. And I, I am I'm considered to be a general positive to the Warframe community, and they recognize people who do that by making them Warframe creators. So I've been a creator for a couple of years now. And you also know that I make big honking props based on Warframe. And so their uh yeah, okay, John. Their annual Warframe convention called TennoCon is coming up later this month. And I wanted to bring up some of my props to give to them for their Warframe Museum. And also because, you know, just a way of saying, hey, thanks for making this game. I really appreciate it. Here are some of my props. So what happened was, I had one of their props already made. That's not a problem. I gave them one of my prototypes for another one of my props. Okay, no big deal. But my masterpiece is basically this microwave shotgun which is incredibly detailed, includes hundreds of parts, huge. The thing is about, it's almost a yard long, so what would that be, 992 centimeters, something like that. It's almost It's almost 34 inches or 92 centimeters long. It weighs almost 10 pounds. It's a freaking monster of a gun, and it literally would have been, well, it was, significantly cheaper for me to drive up to their studio, which is only like an eight-hour drive from me. It's not a big deal. It was cheaper for me to drive up and drop it off at their studio than it was for me to actually try to ship them out. Plus, you know, that way I don't have to worry about having to pay for packaging material, panicking about whether or not it's going to get across the border safely. I figured, screw it. I'll just drive up And don't get me wrong, it was awesome. They gave me a studio tour. They treated me like a VIP. Got to play a couple of things about the game that were being released a few days earlier than the public had access to it, which was cool. But, idiot me decided, you know what? That big honking microwave shotgun? I've got most of the parts printed. I'll be able to have that built in a month. No problem. (sighs) Oh, God, was I wrong? Pro tip. If you ever get into 3D printing, and you ever decide to do something that requires a lot of parts, sand the parts as they come off the printer. Don't throw them all into a box and decide, eh, I'll sand them later. You will hate yourself. You will absolutely hate yourself. I hate myself. I spent so much time last month sanding and priming and sanding, and priming some more, and sanding some more, because this microwave shotgun has just ridiculous amounts of surface area, visible surface area. And I am not kidding that I finally got the damn shotgun finished the night before I was to go up to Digital Extremes, and I was working on that gun every single freaking night. As soon as I was done with job number one, as soon as I got home from job number two, Every freaking night for all of July, up to the point that I drove up, I was just working on that prop, and I barely, barely got it done in time. And this was something that we scheduled a month ago, so it's not like I could say, um, you know, can we reschedule this? Because I want to work on my podcast, and it, no, it just, (laughs) don't, don't do that. Sand the parts as they come off the printer, if you're going to sand them, it's, so much easier on your sanity. Not gonna lie, by the time it was all done, I was burned out. I didn't want to do anything else with props. So, yeah, that's that's why, that's why this podcast was late, and then I spent a week up there, also hanging out with a few friends of mine that I know from being online, but I didn't really have a chance to meet. So I've met a few of them now, and so now I'm back and I've gone through my show notes, and... Yeah, this this podcast is super freaking late. So that's what happened. Don't get me wrong. I don't regret it. It was an amazing time up there. Stopped off in Niagara Falls not once, but twice. Got to hang out with some of the DE crew. Got to meet a couple of friends of mine. I don't regret that week, but I... I will never give myself just three to four weeks to build that shotgun again. Ever. Ever. Now, as a result... A lot of the show notes that I have are probably a month... Are, you know, some of them are over a month old, and I apologize for that. But I firmly believe that it's only... It's it's not news if you already know about it. If you don't know some of the things I'm talking about, it doesn't matter how old they are. They're still news. But if you're one who prefers your articles to be a bit more timely, well, then I guess I'll see you at the next episode. The next podcast. Because, you know, at that point, I'll have fresher stuff for you. But the truth of the matter is, ever since... Uh, sag after went on strike. There hasn't been a lot to report because everything is about the strike. Now, I do have a list of a a bunch of movies that have been put on hold, uh, which is not surprising at all. Some release dates have been shuffled because of the strike. Some production has completely stopped because of the strike. And keep in mind, there are two strikes going on. There's the Writers Guild, and then there's the Screen Actors Guild. So, I mean, if this... If, if this episode was only going to have um, more recent information, there wouldn't be a lot, because it's all about the strike. Every day, the various uh, Hollywood rags who send me email, it's, it's all about the strike. And a couple of other things coming in. Of course, there's more to Hollywood than just the strike, but as would be of interest to you, and as pertains to this podcast, not a whole hell of a lot going on. But regardless, I will try to keep this episode as brief as possible. I'm not off to a great start, as we're almost 10 minutes in already, but... Uh, what can you do? All right, let's start with the streaming news first. Well, I, I always do that, so... Following in the footsteps of many other streaming channels, Paramount Plus has cancelled a bunch of its originals, including Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies, Star Trek Prodigy... Oh, boy. Queen of the Universe, and others. And it's not just that they've cancelled them... But they are taking the shows off the platform completely, using it as a tax write-down or business expense write-down, whatever, plus a way to not pay residuals. So they are going to take what is called a content impairment charge, and they're expected to reveal the financial impact at their next earnings statement. This also comes shortly after Paramount uh, has removed a whole bunch of other things from their service. Coyote, No Activity, Guilty Party, Harper House, Real World, and The Twilight Zone. And again, this is to not pay residuals and to basically reduce their costs, which is beyond the residuals, it's laughable, because there's just, whatever, we've gone over this before. However, all of these titles uh, are going to be removed, but apparently... The studios are planning to shop some of them to rival broadcasters and streamers, so there is a chance that some of these shows will show up on other streaming platforms. For those of you who are getting TV stations over the air, you might notice that some of the stations are no longer being viewed. That is because there is a new standard out uh, called ATSC 3.0, and what that is doing is it's adding DRM, to over-the-air broadcasts. Yes, broadcasts that you receive for free over the airwaves are being encrypted now, requiring you to get a brand-new receiver that supports it, and, and if you also have some kind of uh, recording device that is used to record over-the-air programming, you need to make sure that that recording device is compatible with the DRM standards. So I mentioned this for a few reasons. Number one, I freaking hate DRM. It's pointless. It's easily broken. But what's even worse, as far as I'm concerned, is the reasoning why. So this is one of the justifications. While pay TV services like cable and satellite have been protected networks for some time, the reality is that nearly every website uses a seamless signing and authentication process to ensure consumers get what they're expecting and hackers are kept out. What the ever-living freaking hell do website logins have to do with over-the-air signals? I am struggling to try to figure out what the connection is, because there is none. We're talking about signals that you get, local broadcasts, transmitted over-the-air for free. This has nothing to do with internet connectivity. This has nothing to do with website authentication. But yet, this is one of the justifications they give. They then go on to say, The security upgrade for television broadcasters is important because unprotected signals can easily be intercepted, deep faked, and redistributed without permission. What? Are are they talking about people taking an over-the-air signal and making it available on the internet for free? Is that what they're talking about? I mean, in general, the uh, HDMI copy protection can be broken easily with pretty much any number of devices that are out there, which means that HDMI signal can then be, you know, rebroadcast, you know, re-encrypted or or not uh, re-encrypted, re-encoded and broadcast over the internet very easily. With ATSC 3.0, broadcasters have access to layered security. Implementing these technologies makes the broadcast data resistant to spoofing or hijacking, making hijacking incidents much less likely. Who is hijacking over-the-air content and why? And how is it such a financial detriment to these companies that they feel these copy protections are even necessary, especially when the copy protection, the HDMI copy protection, um, sorry, brain fart, also known as HDCP, can easily be bypassed. Very easily. Meaning that they can have all these devices connected to all they want, but all they have to do is put in one of these HDCP remover devices between whatever the new ATSC devices and the TV. Signal's captured, or good is captured. It's just absolutely mind-boggling that they're even attempting to justify this. So I don't know how many who listen to this podcast are actually cord cutters and get over-the-air TV but if you also are if you do get over the air signals and you're using a DVR that's meant to capture the over the air stuff and now suddenly you find that things aren't necessarily working that could very well be a reason and it is one of the dumbest things this this is pure corporate speak this is exactly the same thing as companies continuing to put encryption on DVDs and Blu-rays even though that encryption has been broken many many years ago Netflix has removed its $10 advertising-free basic plan in the U.S. and the U.K., uh, which is obviously meant to push subscribers, uh, to su- push new subscribers to sign up for a more lucrative subscription option. So their sign-up page uh, now shows only three options for new subscribers. The $7 with ads, $16 standard, and $20 premium. But if you are currently on the basic plan, you can remain on that plan you're being grandfathered in until you change your plans or cancel your account. So be very careful if you are considering signing up for one of the higher plans and thinking, well, if I don't like it, I'll just switch back to my basic plan. You might not want to do that because once you switch, your basic plan option completely disappears. Now this bit satisfies the nerd in me and can also, I might as well save this for TGP Nominal as well. NASA has announced that it's launching its first on-demand streaming platform to give Stargazers a new alternative to Netflix. So it is, of course, going to be called NASA Plus. Duh, because everybody is saying that our streaming service needs to have a plus in the name. But it will initially, well, they're saying it will initially be an ad-free service with no monthly fees, offering live broadcasts, and also access to NASA's collection of original video series. Um... To put it bluntly, it better freaking be ad-free and free to the public because everything NASA does is paid with U.S. tax dollars. So yeah, as far as I'm concerned, and this might not be a, a technically legal statement, but if I end up having to pay for a NASA online service in that manner, is that not double taxation? But I digress. So NASA plans to launch the service later this year. And uh, as well as being available on NASA's iOS and Android apps and, of course, web browsers, you will be able to get NASA Plus on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire TV devices. And finally, I've talked in the past about a service called Tele, which is a service that is going to give people a free 55-inch Ultra HD TV. It's actually a dual-screen set because the catch to it is that it comes with a separate monitor that will be constantly feeding you ads, and that's what justifies it being free. That's where they're going to get their revenue. So TV should have already started arriving at people's houses. They plan to ship some 500,000 free ad-supported TVs during this year, during what they're calling a public beta program. Uh, and they say that the... Uh, New Telly households represent a cross-section of the U.S. population, but it does skew toward Gen Zers and Millennials, which, that's not very surprising. So, according to Telly, more than 250,000 people have signed up. And each sign-up also gets a free Chromecast with a Google TV adapter. And the real catch, and we have discussed this, is that users must submit detailed demographic info, including age, gender, address, purchasing behaviors, brand preferences, and viewing habits, and they must agree to let their data be used for serving targeted ads. They will also include a sensor that detects how many people are in front of the screen at any given moment. So they are basically going to be scanning your room. If users... uh. They have to agree to several conditions under the Terms of Service, and if they cannot abide by the Terms of Service, Tele reserves the right to demand the TV be shipped back or charge the user up to $1,000 on the credit card that's associated with the account. And among those requirements is you must use the product as a primary television in your household. can't be a basic bedroom TV or whatever. It has to be the main TV in your household. You must keep the TV connected to the Internet at all times, which... Okay, that kind of makes sense. Uh, you are not allowed to use any kind of ad blocking software. Again, kind of makes sense. In uh, addition, you may not make physical modifications to the product or attach physical devices to the product not expressly approved by Telly. That is a bit of a dick move. And any attempt to open the product's enclosure will be deemed an unauthorized modification. Well, Okay, I get that too. But, I mean, I'm sorry, you, you cannot attach any device that they don't specifically allow. And the thing is going to be scanning your room constantly to make sure uh, that there are a certain amount of people, or not so much that, but they're going to be checking how many people are watching. I don't know, maybe I'm just old school, or uh, my, my years in IT are putting up a lot of red flags on that one. But I mean, I'm sorry, when, when you can get an Ultra HD TV nowadays for a few hundred bucks, is your privacy or lack thereof really worth it for a $1,000 TV that apparently you never own either? They don't say anything about how, oh, well, after X amount of years, you own the TV, you can do with it as you wish. This sounds like it's going to be in perpetuity. Is that something you really want as well? Just saying that if you're going to go for this telly deal because it seems like a good deal, just be careful what you wish for. Okay, not going to go over the box office because it's, it's kind of obvious what's going on. Barbie and Oppenheimer are simply destroying the box office in a good way. As I record this, Barbie has earned $811 million worldwide, which is insane. Uh, And Oppenheimer so far has earned $419 million worldwide. In fact, thanks to Barbie and Oppenheimer and a number of others, including Sound of Freedom, the new Indiana Jones movie, the new Mission Impossible movie, Elemental, Spider-Man, and a few others, July, for the domestic box office here in the U.S. and Canada, is the second best ever, ever in Hollywood history. So, the biggest record July belongs to 2011, which brought in $1.39 billion, but that includes Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. But this year's July domestic box office earned a very, very close $1.37 billion. So, that means it was 20% better than last year's July uh, box office, and 6% higher than than pre-pandemic 2019. I'm sorry, but I I can't help but think of the people who were saying that COVID is going to kill the movie theaters and no one is going to ever want to go to the theaters again. Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, Barbie has also been breaking a whole bunch of records. Uh, Their opening weekend was uh, $337 million globally which has broken the opening weekend record for a female director. That surpasses Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman, and it also surpasses Captain Marvel, which was co-directed by Anna Boden. So right now, Barbie has the biggest opening of 2013, surpassing the Super Mario Brothers movie, biggest opening by a female director, highest opening for a non-sequel, <laughs> the biggest opening for a toy-based film, the biggest opening for a movie without IMAX, Fourth biggest weekend ever. The biggest first Monday at the box office for Warner Brothers. The second biggest first Monday for a non-holiday film. It's crazy. The second biggest second Friday. So this is the weekend after it opened. The the biggest second Friday since COVID. The biggest opening week ever for a Warner Brothers movie. The highest uh, box office for its second Monday and it is very likely to cross the $1 billion mark by, maybe even by the time you hear this podcast. On top of that, Barbie and Oppenheimer together have given AMC Theatres its best week ever in its 103-year history, and Barbie and Oppenheimer have shot the UK and Ireland box office to its biggest week ever as well. Their first week has brought in 66 million pounds, which beat the record previously set by The Force Awakens, which brought in 58 million pounds. In the meantime, The Flash has effectively bombed. You can try to figure out the reasons why. Maybe it's Ezra Miller and the problems that they've been having. Maybe it's superhero burnout. That's very possible, too. Indiana Jones has underperformed. The Flash has grossly underperformed. In fact, a lot of movies that were expected to do well over the past few years, superhero movies, have underperformed. Shazam underperformed, Eternals underperformed. Not saying that they were box office bombs, mind you, but, I mean, they struggled to get to the break-even point if they have reached the break-even point. It just makes you wonder if there is superhero burnout going on. Uh, Elemental, the latest Pixar movie, was expected to be a failure because that did not do well at the domestic box office. Its domestic opening was only $29 million, and people were thinking, oh, okay, well, this movie is bombed out. But it turns out that the movie has actually surged in the international market. I mean, it, it's still going domestically. It finally has brought in $146 million recently, but it has done incredibly well overseas. Korea is a very strong box office for Elemental for whatever reason. In fact, out of the three hundred and sixty, sorry, the three hundred and ninety-seven million dollars that Elemental has brought in so far, over forty-four million of that is just South Korea, so that's finally doing well, and that's expected to cross the if it hasn't already crossed the four hundred million dollar mark. I'm not sure the numbers that I'm looking at. Uh, I think those are just as of the weekend, so chances are it has already surpassed the four hundred million dollar mark. Again, the theater is back, and I'm. I'm very glad to see it. So going back to Barbie, it is about to cross the $1 billion mark globally. It might have already done it by the time you hear this podcast. So the question is, where's the sequel? Where's the announcement for the sequel? Well, (laughs) there's no guarantee that there's going to be a sequel. And if there is, it might not star everybody who's in the original movie. So I mean, under normal circumstances, a studio behind any kind of big hit or what they think will be a big hit will put some kind of a sequel into development almost immediately, or at least put into the contract the ability for the actors to come back for a sequel. Uh, I mean, Paramount has already announced a sequel for the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. But unfortunately, Barbie has to deal with a writer's and an actor's strike. And as I said, the fact is that none of the main characters in Barbie, Margot Robbie or Ryan Gosling have anything in place, you know, an option for a sequel. Now, considering how much the movie has taken off, you can just about guarantee that they are going to go back to her, and they're going to say, hey, we need to do a sequel, and she's going to say, let's talk money. Now, Ryan Gosling also does not have any deal for a sequel, but for him, he's an actor who's known more for uh, one-and-done movies, uh, not doing sequels. Not to mention, now, Barbie is now considered to be a big tent pole intellectual property title. And he generally doesn't like the big tent poles either. And of course, same thing with director Greta Gerwig. She has no options to be pulled in for a sequel either in her existing contract. And most likely with her too, seeing as how much money the movie is making, she is probably going to be coming back and saying, show me the money. So as of right now, the strikes have completely ruined any chance of negotiating with any of the actors or Greta Gerwig. And the fact that it's doing so well at the box office puts all the cards into you know the actors' and uh, directors' pockets. So as of right now, there are no plans for a Barbie sequel, but you can just about guarantee it's going to happen. With Blue Beetle coming out and James Gunn now bringing forth his DC Universe, there have been questions as to where Blue Beetle is going to be coming into play with all of this. And not only is Blue Beetle being designed to be a trilogy... James Gunn has confirmed that, and I'm not sure where this goes, Blue Beetle is the first DCU character, but the first full DCU movie is Superman. Okay, then, if if Blue Beetle is the first DCU character, then why is the movie not the first full DCU movie? I'm not quite following that one. I mean, unless he's talking about having a whole bunch of different characters within the various, I I don't know, that's, maybe that's what he's talking about, whereas Blue Beetle, like Shazam, is kind of a one-off, not one-off, but I mean, it's their own story. I mean, the only other option is that Blue Beetle is, uh, Blue Blue Beetle was made before Gunn and Saffron took over at DC Studios, so, but he might like the character enough to bring him into the DC Universe, but because the movie is really technically not one of, of James Gunn's movies, maybe that's what he means? I don't know. Anyway, we'll see how it goes. And since Blue Beetle is really the first DC movie uh, to focus on a Latino hero, maybe it will be able to break the box office curse that that we've been having lately for superhero films. And apparently, even though uh, we've got a whole new DC universe under James Gunn and Peter Safran, it sounds like Gal Gadot is still returning as Wonder Woman. And she herself said in an interview with ComicBook.com that uh, it's uh, she loves okay let's just do this i love portraying wonder woman it's so close and so dear to my heart from what i understand from james and from peter is that we're going to develop a wonder woman 3 together so if gunn and saffron are, are telling her yeah we're going to work on a wonder woman 3 then it looks like her take her uh, you know her role as wonder woman is not done now regarding patty jenkins there's nothing regarding that one. Uh, there, there's no mentioning of that one. And uh, right now, there is no Wonder Woman movie currently in, included in their slate of projects for Chapter 1 of the DC Universe. So she might just play a character who comes in, and Wonder Woman 3 might be part of the uh, second chapter. So who knows? I clearly do not. But you'll know when I know. Well, the Academy is changing the rules a little bit when it comes to movies that want to qualify for Best Picture. So beginning with the 97th Academy Awards for films released in 2024, there are some additional requirements for Best Picture eligibility, and this is just Best Picture, not other categories, that any movie that wants to qualify for Best Picture has to have what they're calling an expanded theatrical run of seven days. It says consecutive or non-consecutive in 10 of the top 50 U.S. markets, as opposed to... In one of six particular U.S. cities, of course, those are going to be you know New York, Los Angeles, that sort of thing. So now they have to have a week-long run in ten of the top of uh, yep yeah, in ten of the top fifty U.S. markets, no later than forty-five days after the original release. Although non-U.S. territory releases can count towards two of those ten markets. So basically, what they're doing is saying, look, if you want to be considered for Best Picture, you got to put your movie in the theaters or at least in in more theaters than you currently are. There actually were suggestions uh, for even longer qualifying runs of two or more weeks, but that one could have a very significant impact on smaller or specialty distributors, independent films, that sort of thing. For example, Sony Pictures Classics usually will qualify a film for a week in L.A. or New York City, and then reopen it on a limited basis uh, in the new year, and then slowly move it around the country this is going to have a significant impact on their kinds of strategies. Because now, instead of qualifying it in New York City or L.A., they now have to qualify it in 10 different cities for a week at a time. So really, I mean, the whole idea behind this is that they they want to encourage theatrical distribution. They want people to get back in the theaters. And now they are hoping that having this kind of qualification for any movie that wants to be considered for Best Picture, they now have to have more theatrical runs in more cities. So, of course, there's another uh, train of thought out there that this is meant to punish streamers, and that's not necessarily the case. You know, Streaming studios are now starting to have more of a presence in the theater. I mean, Netflix opened Glass Onion uh, for a week-long release. Amazon went ahead and released uh, Air with Ben Affleck, Uh, or directed by Ben Affleck, in 3,000 theaters, and that brought in $50 million at the box office. And now Apple, they have Martin Scorsese's uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. They're looking to have a relatively big theatrical release for that. So we'll see what kind of an impact this, this finally does have in the coming years, but hopefully it means that more of you will be able to see more best picture contenders in your local theater. Particularly if you live in in one of those top fifty markets. Oscar winner Alan Arkin has died. He received his first nomination with his very first significant role uh, back in 1966's The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. Two years later, he won another Oscar nomination for his portrayal as a deaf mute in A Heart. The, sorry, The Heart Is a Lonely Hunter. He won another uh, Academy Award nomination in 2012's Argo. But his, his main Oscar was actually won for his role in 2006's Little Miss Sunshine, at which point he was, he was 72, which means he was the oldest person at the time to win the Best Supporting Actor trophy. And not only did he make his mark on the big screen, he made his mark on the stage as well, winning a Tony Award, a, a Tony Award back in 1963 for his performance in Enter Laughing. But I can just about guarantee you've seen him in something because he has been in a huge number of movies. uh, Opposite uh, Peter Falk in The In-Laws. Opposite James Caan in Freebie and the Bean. Opposite Audrey Hepburn in Wait Until Dark. 1970s Catch-22. Edward Scissorhands. The Rocketeer. Slums of Beverly Hills. He has been in a very large number of movies. Big Trouble. Gross Point Blank. Four Days in September, Marley and Me, Million Dollar Arm, and that's just a handful of them. He, is also, uh, he also was a director, uh, directing the 1971 film version of Little Murders, and he also wrote a 12-minute short film called People Soup in 1969. Then that was uh, nominated for an Oscar. And on top of all of that, he also composed more than 100 songs and recorded a number of albums for children. The incredibly versatile Alan Arkin was 89. The San Bernardino County Sheriff's Office has confirmed that the body of Julian Sands has been found. His cause of death has been officially listed as undetermined, but he disappeared back in January near Mount Baldy, which lies uh, near the San Gabriel Mountains, about about 50 miles northeast of Los Angeles. But it's one of the highest peaks in the region at over 11,000 feet. So Sands began his film career in 1984, appearing in the movie Oxford Blues opposite Rob Lowe, as well as Best Picture nominee The Killing Fields. But his breakthrough came in when he was cast as the romantic lead in A Room with a View back in 1985. He also starred in a number of other movies, uh, including Warlock, of course Warlock the Armageddon, uh, Impromptu, Arachnophobia, Boxing Helena, Leaving Las Vegas. He also played The Phantom, in the 1998 version of Phantom of the Opera, but then went to star opposite Jackie Chan in the action comedy The Medallion. In addition to his big screen performances, you probably saw him on the small screen as well, uh, because he starred in Stargate SG-1. He appeared in 24. And he also starred as Superboy's Kryptonian father Jor-El in the series Smallville. Julian Sands was 65. And finally, Paul Rubens has died after a six-year battle with cancer. His final message to the fans was posted on his Instagram account saying, Please accept my apology for not going public with what I've been facing over the past six years. I have always felt a huge amount of love and respect from my friends, fans, and supporters. I have loved you all so much and enjoyed making art for you. Although he did have a small part in the movie The Blues Brothers, he is best known for his role as Pee-wee in his breakthrough film Pee-wee's Big Adventures, uh, directed by Tim Burton, back in 1985. Of course, that was followed up with a sequel called Big Top Pee-wee, but he was also known for his TV series Pee-wee's Playhouse from 1986 to 1990, which was his Saturday morning children's show on CBS. Of course, as many people, especially of my age, know, uh, his career came to a very abrupt halt back in 1991 when he was arrested in Sarasota, Florida, in an adult theater charged with indecent exposure. So after that, he did go back to the movies, but he basically left his character Pee-wee behind, starring in Mystery Men, 2001's Blow, but he also starred in Reno 911, 30 Rock, Penguin's Father in Batman Returns, and the one scene that kept going around the internet was a very memorable death scene in the movie Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But even with all of that, I think to most people, he will always be Pee-wee Herman. Paul Rubens was 70. We kind of knew this one was going to happen. This is exactly what they expected. Cineworld has emerged from Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So if you have a regal theater near you, it's going to stay there. They've completed their financial restructuring process, and they've emerged from all of their bankruptcy cases in the U.S., so I'm not going to go over the details of the bankruptcy. That's for financial people, and I'm I'm not a financial person. Now, it looks like they might still have some issues going on in the UK because they have named an administrator over there, and administration is kind of sort of like bankruptcy, but they also had their shares delisted from the London Stock Exchange. So I'm not familiar enough with how uh, you know uh, British markets work in that regard, and the article doesn't explain any of that. But still, the fact that it has left U.S. bankruptcy, that's a good sign. Chadwick Boseman will receive a posthumous star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame next year. Uh, The Hollywood Chamber of Commerce has announced that Boseman, who died back in 2020 following a private battle with colon cancer, will be honored with the star in the category of motion pictures. Obviously, he's best known for his role as T'Challa in Black Panther, which was the first superhero movie to earn a Best Picture nomination. His final performance as his character in the Disney Plus series What If earned him a posthumous Primetime Emmy Award. He also starred as Jackie Robinson in 42 and as Thurgood Marshall in Marshall. And he also received a posthumous Oscar nomination uh, and Screen Actors Guild Award for his role as the ambitious trumpeter Levy Green in Netflix's Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Information as to where the star will be placed and when the ceremony is going to take place have not yet been released. Fans of George A. Romero, hopefully, will be happy to hear that his final zombie movie is now getting ready to be produced. It's called Twilight of the Dead, and right now has a planned start date of late 2023 in Puerto Rico. Obviously, with the strikes that are going on, who knows what might happen with that. So this is to be the seventh and final installment of the Living Dead franchise. And this is going to be based on a treatment for the movie that Romero wrote before he died back in 2017. The project was first revealed back in 2021. There hasn't been much spoken about it since. But the script is now finished, having been taken on by several writers who also worked with Romero on the original treatment. So according to this... It's set on a tropical island. We're told Twilight of the Dead will delve into the dark nature of humanity from the perspective of the last humans on Earth who are caught between factions of the undead. It is being framed by the producers as thought-provoking social-political commentary wrapped in a genre piece. Isn't that that's kind of what all of the Living Dead movies were really? But right now, the production team, which also includes his his last wife and his estate manager, uh, is in negotiations with a director. Uh, but obviously they were in talks with a cast before the SAG after strike, And of course, unsurprisingly, the team also says that they have not closed the door on the possibility of additional movies in the franchise should this one go well. Seems kind of a jerk move since Romero himself said that this was the ending, but uh, whatever. Director William Friedkin, who is probably best known for the Oscar-winning The French Connection, as well as his blockbuster The Exorcist, has died. The French Connection has arguably one of the most popular car chase scenes in all of movie history, and it also won several Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actor for Gene Hackman, and effectively became a touchstone for police genre movies for years. That was then followed by 1973's The Exorcist, which grossed a ridiculous, back then, $500 million worldwide, which, according to the one calculator that I'm currently using, $500 million in 1973 is $3.4 billion today. That movie also earned him a second Oscar nomination for Best Director. His 1977 movie Sorcerer became notorious for basically being abandoned by both Uh, Paramount Pictures and Universal Pictures. It was notorious for going well over budget, and then neither studio promoted it or did anything with it and yanked it out of the theaters very early. So it never had a chance of recovering its budget. And then he followed that with the thriller The Brinks Job uh, and the 1983 comedy Deal of the Century, which (laughs) any of you who had HBO back in the 80s, you know that they, they pushed that movie hard. He also directed 1985's To Live and Die in L.A., Uh, and in the 2000s, he directed The Hunted with Tommy Lee and Benicio Del Toro, sorry, Tommy Lee Jones, not Tommy Lee, as a different guy, Uh, and Benicio Del Toro, as well as the 2007 horror movie Bug with Ashley Judd and Harry Connick Jr. His final movie, The Kane Mutiny Court Martial, starring Kiefer Sutherland, is set to premiere at the Venice Film Festival. William Friedkin was 87.
1: I've spent the past seven years traveling the world, perfecting my craft. You see, I'm something of a magician, inventor and chocolate maker. So quiet up and listen down. Nope, scratch that, reverse it. Mr. Wonka, I can say you're a man of great ingenuity.
0: What are you doing?
1: I'm making chocolate,
0: of course. How do you like it? Dark, white, nutty, absolutely insane.
1: Many people have come here to sell chocolate. They've all been crushed by the chocolate cartel. You can't get a shop without selling chocolate, and you can't sell chocolate without a shop. No daydreaming.
0: What are we gonna do, Willy? Huh. Huh? Huh. A double, huh?
1: Get a pencil and paper. Uh Uh-huh. i got an idea. I know things haven't been easy for you.
0: They're gonna get better. You promise?
1: Pinky promise. That's
0: the most solemn vow there is. Where do we start? A good chocolate, to Mr. Bull. Where's this? It's just... weird.
1: What's happening? Oh, Who wants a chocolate that makes it fly? Well, let's find out, shall we? Who's for a hover <laughs> Nothing
0: to see here. Just a small group of people defying the laws of gravity.
1: So you're the funny little man who's been following. I will have you know that I am a perfectly respectable size for an Oompa Loompa. number one now? Allow me to refresh your memory. Oh, I don't think I want to hear that. Too late. I've started
0: dancing now. Once we've started, we can't stop. That is obviously part of the trailer for the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory prequel, simply called Wonka. That's going to be in theaters on December 15th, and you know where to go to watch the trailer. We've talked before about how AMC was planning to charge different prices for different seats in their theater. They have now dropped that plan completely, uh, saying that uh, their plan involving the higher prices for the best seats in the theater and lower prices for seats at the very front of the auditorium, Uh, that pilot program will end in the coming weeks and they're going to replace it with a new program that aims to upgrade the seats at the front of each auditorium, which is generally considered to be the worst viewing experience possible. I've sat in the front row for movies. It's not fun. The company said that it is moving away from the pilot program to ensure its ticket prices stay competitive. What? They were, they, they were going to charge... Different prices. And now they're saying, well, we're doing it to stay competitive. What does that say about what they were going to price those seats? It sounds more like they were going to charge regular fee for all of the seats, but then a higher price for the good seats instead of, you know, regular price for the good seats and then lower price for the worst seats. Hmm. But, I mean, in, in improving the seats in the front few sections, maybe to something more of a recliner kind of seat, I mean that uh, maybe I could see that possibly working. Anyway, obviously we've got the strikes going on. There have been a whole number of, of movies that have been well and TV shows really that have been pushed back because of the strikes. so I'm just going to go over a few of them. I mean really, the this podcast might up being might end up being a little bit shorter than normal simply because the vast majority of news has been strike related. And there's not a whole hell of a lot going on because of the strikes. I I got very, very few announcements coming out of San Diego Comic-Con because actors and and producers and directors weren't allowed to talk about the movies that they want people to be pumped about. Now Things like that, there there really has not been a lot of information since the last podcast. But there have been a lot of date changes, all because of the strike. So White Bird, which is the uh, spinoff prequel to the 2007 box office hit Wonder, uh, was set to launch on August 18th and then go wider on August 25th. It is now undated for the fourth quarter of this year. Dirty Dancing has now moved from February 9th of next year to sometime in summer of 2025. Over at Sony, the racing pick San, Turi- or, sorry, <laughs> San. Gran Turismo was supposed to open on August 11th. That will now open on August 25th. Spider-Man: Beyond the Spider-Verse was set to launch on March 29th, 2024. It for now has been taken off the calendar completely. The Ghostbusters Afterlife sequel is you, it was going to be shown on December 20th of this year. It is now moving ahead to, moving ahead moving back to March 29th, 2024. Craven the Hunter was supposed to be shown on October 6th of this year. That has now been pushed out to August 30th of 2024. The next Karate Kid movie, which doesn't even have a filmmaker involved yet, uh, has been pushed out from June 7th of next year to December 13th of next year. But among all of the reshuffles, a few movies uh, that previously did not have release dates now do. Uh, The new Bad Boys sequel is now scheduled to hit theaters on June 14th of 2024, and the third Venom movie now has a release date of July 12th of 2024. One movie in particular that I have been waiting for because I love the game franchise is Eli Roth's Borderlands. That's now set to head to theaters on August 9th, 2024. Uh, that one did come out of, of San Diego Comic-Con, but of course, because of what's going on, there was no new trailer, no images, nothing like that. I love... Well, okay, the first Borderlands was okay. It kind of ended up being a little bit of a grayathon, but Borderlands 2 is... Such a ridiculously good game. I think I've put, I'm sure I've put in over 400 hours on that game. I've played it through five or six times. Even had the pleasure of running into its main writer at PAX East one year, which was awesome. So yeah, that one, that one I'm definitely looking forward to. Hopefully that one won't get pushed back. So a couple of things about Oppenheimer. So Oppenheimer is now so popular in its original IMAX 70mm format. That it is now getting an extension, a second run extension. So it will now be shown at IMAX theaters nationwide throughout the end of August. It was scheduled to end its run on August seventeenth, but there has been so much demand that it's now going to be shown in seventy millimeter IMAX till the end of the month. Now, keep in mind, there are only nineteen theaters that were in the country. Uh, sorry, nineteen theaters in the country and thirty worldwide that have the capability of playing IMAX in 70mm. Uh, that includes AMC Universal City Walk in Los Angeles, and the AMC Lincoln Square in New York. So needless to say, those tickets are some of the hottest out there. But if you are one of the fortunate few who have some of those kinds of 70mm of IMAX theaters available to you, and you've been wanting to see Oppenheimer but couldn't get tickets for it, now you have a better chance, at least till the end of August, and who knows... Maybe they'll extend it even further if there's still enough demand. And uh, to show how dedicated Christopher Nolan is to this, Oppenheimer uses IMAX lenses that did not exist before the movie. So according to cinematographer Hoyt van Hoytema, uh, he said that, well, he first started working with Nolan on Interstellar, and apparently, I mean, no, so IMAX, if you're not familiar with it, it really was originally created for like documentary filmmaking, stuff that would be shown for for science. There are several IMAX 3D Blu-rays out there. I've got one for the space station. There are others out there for, you know, uh, landscape, underwater, that sort of thing. IMAX really was used for for more documentary purposes. It wasn't originally intended for cinematic filmmaking. But even more than that, when it did start to take off for cinematic filmmaking, it was mostly for grand vistas, wide shots, that sort of thing. And a lot of what Christopher Nolan has done in Oppenheimer is very close up. Whether it's it's close up on people's faces or using uh, microphotography, not, well, not, not microphotography, but, you know, miniatures and so forth for the special effects that he did or whatever, IMAX cameras and lenses are not meant for that kind of shot. So in an interview with Van Hoytema, he said that uh, straight away, we started engineering specific lenses for the IMAX camera. Effectively, when you do this sort of microphotography, when you want to have a camera, for instance, in between here or track between there, because IMAX cameras are also known for being incredibly large, to enlarge the world of this to sort of a life size format, you need special lenses. You need what we call probe lenses. They didn't exist for IMAX. So Dan Sasaki from Panavision built us this Pro Lens, and we experimented with it, and we improved it, and in the end, it was something that we used a lot for aquarium work, and micro work, and macro work, so that was very exciting. And apparently, that's that's how they got all of the special effects to work for things like the Trinity Explosion, because the one thing that Christopher Nolan has been very pleased with, and he's been making it very well known, is that he did not use cgi in oppenheimer at all and even the explosions were filmed using in-camera processes and obviously by from all you know by reading all of this they used aquariums to be able to film these explosions so it says here that the filmmakers filmed explosions in aquariums bursting balloons and trying lots of different methods until they found something that works and one of the ways that uh, they helped to make that work was by developing brand new lenses And that actually is kind of exciting, because that means that that's going to make the IMAX format a bit more accessible, not only to to Nolan in the future, but to any other filmmakers who decide to try to use the format. And finally for Oppenheimer, I I swear I talked about this, but I couldn't find anything. I, I scanned through the podcast, I thought I talked about this, maybe I didn't, so apologies if I didn't, I just completely forgot. So like I said, there are only a handful of IMAX theaters in the US and it well actually in the world that can show this seventy millimeter print uh for Oppenheimer. And the movie is the biggest that Nolan has ever done, uh, and it comes in just shy of three hours long. That's a hell of a lot of film. And seventy millimeter film is big and it's heavy. So I've talked about my time uh Previously, when I worked at a movie theater, and I was one of the assistant managers, and one of my, ju- my my duties my duties was to assemble the movie prints. So they would come in reels of twenty minutes each, and what I would do is I would take each of these reels, and I would take you know the end of the first reel and splice on the beginning of the second reel, and loop them all onto these large platters. So each projector had three platters, each one that could hold I think it was four and a half hours, something like that. I'm pretty sure it was four and a half hours. And you'd have one empty one at all times. So you could actually have two movies ready to go. And then you feed whichever one is going to show into the projector. And then feed that back onto the empty platter. So then, as the movie plays, it simply shifts to a new location. And then it's ready to be threaded up and sent back to another blank platter. But because of the size and thickness of IMAX's 70 millimeter film, one completed reel, one completed platter of Oppenheimer is 11 miles long and weighs 600 pounds. The spliced together spool platter, whatever you want to call it, is so large it almost didn't fit on the IMAX platters. So if you want to see what this looks like, go to the show notes. I have a link to a picture of one of these platters completely loaded With one of these oppenheimer prints i've worked in this industry i've seen the size of those platters and i mean i don't know that these are the exact same size but still just knowing what i know and seeing one of these platters completely full with a 70 millimeter print is amazing and i'm jealous that i can't see it in person if you're ever over in ireland and you happen to be in county galway you will have a little bit of a chance to possibly visit a place that is... Well, it was nominated for an Oscar, but the pub where much of the action from the Oscar-nominated Banshees of Inishirin was filmed, is it's been saved. And it's actually a place where you can go and get a pint. Of, Of Guinness, of course, because, you know, Ireland. So the Banshees of Inishirin actually won the most Oscar nominations for any Irish film ever. And after the movie became such a big hit because of its Oscar nominations and so forth, there were questions about what happened to the pub that, that uh, the movie took place at, which was called J.J. Devine's. Well, as it turns out, Luke Mee, the owner of a place called Mee's Pub, decided to take a look into possibly getting the set and rebuilding the set. And as it turns out, because Ireland is a small island nation, it wasn't really a surprise when he found out that his brother-in-law was given the set of J.J. Devine's for Timber. So apparently his brother-in-law was on security for the film, he asked for the set when the filming was done, and he got it. So when he told his brother-in-law what he wanted to do with it, he was given all of that lumber for nothing. So since he already had a pub, that means he had a pub license, he was ready to go. So it was a very top-secret job, they wanted to keep it completely secret until it was open to the public. So another a number of people have called and wished them well for doing this, including including Taylor Swift, who even said that she might stop in when she's in Ireland next year on tour. So they said they're saving the first free drink for her. But I mean, regardless, it's just really cool because the set is a very important part of Irish movie history, and it's always cool to find out when sets like that are being saved and restored so that you know people in the public can uh, can sit and enjoy it, and. Also, or should I say finally, finally, speaking of Hollywood history, I found a video just today from Adam Savage, who I'm sure all of you know from the TV series Mythbusters. The guy is just steeped deep in Hollywood history. He was part of ILM. He built many sets in very popular movies like the Star Wars prequels, not sets, uh, he built miniatures and stuff like that. He's a prop maker. Well, there's another guy who's popped onto the scene lately on TikTok and Instagram and Twitter and so forth called Michael Corey, uh, and he goes by the name Props to History, and he talks all about various props and so forth that have been used in in Hollywood. So, almost everything that you see, almost, especially in the older movies, anything that you saw that was printed... Or like bottle labels or newspapers or flyers that appeared in movie or things like that were printed by a company called Earl Hayes Press. They've been doing it for over 100 years, and they obviously have a massive archive of things that they have printed for movies throughout the year, throughout the years, rather. So one of the things that Michael Corey has been brought on to do at Earl Hayes Press is to archive all the stuff that he finds, because they never even had an archive. They simply would do the runs for whatever movies they got hired to do the runs for, and then they maybe stack some things away, just in case they needed to make more of them, but they never really had an archive. So he is doing the archiving for them. Well, Adam Savage decided to stop on by, and a video that was released just a few weeks ago talks about how a lot of these props are made, so it's him and... Uh, Michael Corey talking about a whole bunch of very historic, sometimes only remaining printed materials for Earl Hayes Press for various movies like Casablanca, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Back to the Future. And you know me, I love behind the scenes stuff and I do love Hollywood history. So, I mean, here, here's just a little bit of it. So these were
1: all acceptable names for fake newspapers that were pre-cleared so Mm -hmm. that they didn't have to worry. And not only that, but also magazines and French newspapers and Spanish newspapers. And somewhere there's the rest of this because who knows how many names they developed over the years. And that's just maybe the only surviving part of it, but that's... (laughs) that's great and then i since you lifted that now i see the back of what looks to me like the die hard bearer that is precisely what that is (laughs) oh that's so cool (laughs) i bought what was said to be an original and it Mm -hmm. is so not oh yeah yeah i've seen Um, the originals that people have put out yeah they're shiny it doesn't have a backing but But this is there it is that is it god that's it so (gasps) we know the cuts for these that have all the printing exist in the building we haven't found them oh, yet. for what everything was made in here and i found these about well i won't say how many i found but i'll show you in a little while yeah. but uh, oh my god just stacked on a shelf <laughs> and they've been forgotten about since the 80s and there they are those it's lovely too. And it's as, on they, a... as they sit right here yeah. they were ordered by the thousands with no printing of, on them yeah. when they dumped them from a crane at the end scene where they're all raining down they didn't bother printing them. of course they were they blanks because you're just seeing this you're sh- just seeing paper the shape yeah wow yeah, that is the diehard bearer bond itself. It's and that's the thing that no one gets in yeah, any no of the one replicas. That like. thing, yeah, because you barely see it. You, you barely see it. it. You literally. I have the screenshot from the Blu-ray. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you see it like this. Yeah, as as and then you don't know the... what the rest of it looks like. And, right. and now, no. now you do. Now you know full well. That's incredible. But this, it's it's just another. It, and like you said, the story is often the same with how this stuff is found. Right. It's just randomly found because these guys were working so much. Right. They just put it away and moved on to the next thing. And no one cared about this stuff for the longest time.
0: The video is only about 20, and just a little, it's a little over 20 minutes long, like 23 minutes or so, but it's loaded with movie history. And it's so, co- just a fraction of movie history. That's the other part. There, there is so much that Michael Corey has yet to discover in that place. And I am so looking forward to it. But anyway, I will have a link in the show notes. And hopefully you'll feel as much happiness and bewilderment at the fact that some of this stuff was is there as I did. But anyway, that's it. So yeah, again, I've just been so freaking busy. I'm so sorry <laughs> to all of my three listeners that the podcast is so late this month. Actually, I completely skipped July, so it's not even this month. It's last month. Uh, I will not be getting another one out this month either. Because I'm going to be so busy for the next few weeks trying to make even more props for TennoCon. And then I'm going to be gone until September, the very beginning of September. So there's not going to be another podcast for the rest of this month either. But hopefully after that, things will start to settle down for me. And then hopefully my life will become a little more tranquil. You know, So I can just think of things like happy little trees. And you know, just taking it easy. Letting things go at my own pace. That's right, just put the paint on the canvas. Don't don't think about it, just put the paint on the canvas and let your imagination come flowing through. Oh, who am I kidding? I'm going to throw more crap on my plate because that's what I always do and my wife always criticizes me for it. Anyway, that's it. Calling it for show number 306. I will see you next at show number 307. Please make sure to follow me on Twitter, Instagram. I am now on Blue Sky as well. Twitter, Instagram, Twitch, Blue Sky, Widescreen John. And yes, I'm calling it Twitter because I will never call it X. Just like I will never say mebibyte instead of megabyte or whatever that stupid terminology is. I'm a rebel. What can I say? All right, everyone. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. And toodles.
1: I can pray and trickle with a double tongue But the only fool boy- me I choose the way to go, but the road won't set me I'm free. Cause I wish you'd see me, baby. Save me, I'm going crazy. Try to keep us real. Keep us alive. This day will die tonight, and there ain't no exception. We shouldn't wait for nothing to wait for. Love me in this fable, babe, my heart is in your hand Our time is waiting right outside your door And maybe tomorrow Is a better day
0: Yeah, maybe tomorrow
1: Is a better day This
0: here podcast... I I don't even know why I started that way. This podcast is copyright 2023 and is released under the Creative Commons license. Some rights are reserved. The widescreen podcast is a proud member of the Blueberry Network. That's BlueberryNoEase.com The music is by Poets of the Fall and is used with permission. Please visit their website at PoetsOfTheFall.com This has been a widescreen.org Production.